So we're going to dedicate this week's parsha year to Moshe David Ben Yitzchak Thaler, which I think is your great uncle. Yeah. Is that right? So I want you to know one of the great losses this year that we had in Corona. The great advantages you guys did a lot of learning. You, you got to experience lots of wood and plastic. Great, right? Ready for like bomber. But um, one of the sad things is that we didn't get a lot of visitors. Almost any. Parents weren't able to visit grandparents. So Judah came up with this fantastic idea. Let's do like Sunday shiurim, where we can share with your parents what we learn with you, right? Because that's what we do when they come here. And uh, a lot of parents got really into this, but the most remarkable thing is a couple of grandparents got into this. So Ben's grandfather has been, I think he's come to every single shear. It's really very stark, very serious. So we're going to dedicate this shear both to his, I guess his brother, was this his brother? Who was Nifter? This is his brother? His brother. Okay, you're going to owe me the story. Judging by your grandfather, he must have been a special person. And we're going to dedicate it to people who recognize it's never too late to get serious and stark in learning. So, I hope it's right before the end, you'll get to come visit, all your parents will get to come visit. Parshat Kitisa. By the way, this Shabbat is also Parshat Para, correct. Which means that this is a really great Shabbos to have meat, because Parshat Para, right? I just think it's stark. So we're getting into it, all right. There's a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about in this week's Parsha. We could talk about Parshat Para, which is all about, um, you know, sort of the mitzvot that are beyond our comprehension and the ability to connect to what Hashem asks of us, even when it makes no sense, which, of course, is a model for relationships when, when we do the things that our loved ones ask, even though it doesn't make sense to us, right? We could talk about... Um, Shamru, this is the, the week where, you know, when, you, when we open up the Sidur on Shabbat morning and it says, Moshe Rabbeinu brought down two Luchot, which is this week's parsha. Um, and it was written in the Mishmirat Shabbat. And you would expect that then it would say, Zachorat Yom Shabbat, Shamorat Yom Shabbat. No, but what does it say? How does, how does that particular prayer, that particular tefillah continue? Veshamru v'neshalta Shabbat. So that's very strange. Why is that there? That's this week's parsha, Kitisa. And I won't, we're not going to discuss that, but I will give you a remez, an idea. The most fascinating word in that Pasuk is, Shabbat, La'asot. They cherished Shabbat, they guarded Shabbat, they kept Shabbat to make Shabbat. Shabbat is what you make of it. Right? That's, now, now we're going to see that that's very much a critical piece of this week's Pasha. So what are we going to talk about? What is the, the biggest, craziest story in the entire Torah? is in this week's Parsha. Jewish people are at the foot of Harsinai. It doesn't get holier than this. They, they directly communicated with the Kaddish Baruch Entire people communicated with God. That's, that's remarkable. It's incredible. It was such an intense experience they couldn't handle it. Right? The Gemara in Makot says, Torah tziva lanu Moshe. Moshe commanded us Torah. The Gematria, the numeric equivalent of Torah, Tough is 400. Vav Rage, 606. Hey, five, six hundred and eleven. What's missing? Two mitzvot. Because Moshe Rabbeinu gave us six hundred and eleven mitzvot, but the first two dibrot, the first two mitzvot of the Aseret of Dibrot, the Ten Commandments, that was given to us directly by Hashem, and that occurs in this week's Parsha. And in the midst of this experience, something goes terribly wrong. You know, I remember in the army, right, there was a concept called Ringo. Ringo was usually, uh, uh, it's a special kind of test that they give you. Um, 
which you can't plan for. It's the unexpected. That's what a Ringo is, right? You're, 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 you're maneuvering, uh, trying to take a pita suri, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the person who's overseeing the maneuver taps your shoulder and says, you're out of ammo. You're out of ammo. You're heading into a fortified pita. It literally looks like a pita. Very difficult position to take. It's a whole advanced, what you have to do. And all of a sudden, your, 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 gun, your 105 millimeter cannon doesn't work. You have to think on the fly. You know, you're attacking two tanks, and all of a sudden, a bazooka pops up next to you. And this test is usually sort of, you practice for this all through your course. But at the end of the course, in order to get through sergeant's course, you had a Ringo. And again, at the end of officer's course, you had another Ringo. And this was like a very difficult test. And if you don't pass this Ringo, then you, you don't get your stripes or your bar or whatever your course is. So I remember at the end of sergeant's course, we're doing a maneuver as part of a platoon. And you're just practicing. You're not even a sergeant yet. You haven't even, you haven't even earned the right to command one tank. Right? Much less become an officer to command three or 11 tanks. And you're in the middle of a maneuver, and it's a Ringo. And you're a sergeant. And all of a sudden, the, the word uh, comes over the radio, you know? Right, 2B, I happen to be, right? Every tank has a call sign. There are three platoons in a company, and each platoon commander, each lieutenant, has two tanks that are subordinate to him, and they're called Echad Aleph, Echad Bet, Shtayim Aleph, Shtayim Bet. So I was in this particular tale, happened to be Shtayim Bet, right? Kan Kod Kod, Shtayim Bet, right? And you answer the radio. This is now the, 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 the company commander who's overseeing this maneuver. And he says, okay, your lieutenant is, is, is injured. The company commander is injured, right? You now have to take over. You're now the platoon commander. You've never commanded three tanks. This is not a real situation, it's a maneuver. And you have to take over the company, right? And, and you don't know what you're doing, uh, the platoon. You don't know what you're doing. But you don't have a right to say you're not doing it. And so even when you're starting to be a sergeant, they train you to take over a platoon. When you do platoon commander's course, they, change, they train you to take over a company. When you do company commander's course, they train you to, to take over a battalion, right? And it, it, it sounds like such a little detail now, but I can't even begin to tell you the level of stress that you experience, right? I hadn't done enough Rambam yet. The level of stress that you experience when all of a sudden you realize it's enough that you, you're trying to struggle with the language, you're trying to make sure that your, 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 your loader is firing your machine gun the right way, that the, the tank gun is pointed in the right direction, you've got your machine gun, you have to use your finger also to talk on the radio, you have to make sure that you're in line with the other tanks, and all of a sudden you're commanding the platoon. There's no platoon commander, you're the platoon commander. Years later, you would discover that this is an extremely valuable exercise because this happens in real life. You know, company commander isn't always there. Sometimes he's not there because he's killed or he's injured. Sometimes he's not there because something comes up. What do you do with that? Now, why do I tell you this story? And, and why is this such an important vision mission? Because I think that's hidden in this week's passion. Let's think about what happened in this week's passion. Okay? We're in Perak Bet. Okay, 32nd chapter in Shemot. Vayar ha'am ki Moshe. And the people see that Moshe is boshesh. What does that mean? I want you to understand, this is the beginning of the story of the sin of the golden calf. The entire debacle of the golden calf occurs, it begins with this moment. So what does it mean that the people see that Moshe is boshesh? What does boshesh mean? Where else do I find Boshesh? 
who am I going to look to if I want to understand what a word means? Rashi. Rashi knows how to do this. So this is what Rashi says, okay? Kitargumo lashon ichur. Okay, the Targum Uncle says, the Chaza'ama, the people see, are ochar Moshe, that Moshe is late. He's late. Wow. And Rashi says, v'chein, boshesh rechvo. Now, whenever Rashi quotes a Pesach, you look up this Pesach. This Pesach is a Pesach from Shoftim. Anybody know what the story is? Boshesh rechvo, anybody know? This is one of the more famous sections of Tanakh. This is the Song of Dvorah. Okay, you can actually, this is one of those uh, biblical events. You can visit the exact site of this biblical event. There is a mountain called Har Tavor. It's called Har Tavor. Anybody know what a Tavor is in Hebrew? It's a belly button. Tabul. It's a belly button. Now we all know there's two types of belly buttons. There's an Indian and an Audi. Right? There is a mountain in northern Israel. It sits near the Kinneret. Okay? In the lower Galil. And it's called right above the Bika, right above the Jordan Valley. We are going to pass it on Monday when we go up to the Golan. And it's called Har Tavor. Okay? It happens to be, by the way, an amazing hike. And when you're in Benazmanim, you know, obviously all the hikes you do have to be sanctioned and we have to know where you're going and make sure it's safe. This is one of those that you can do if you know what you're doing. And it's a beautiful hike. And there's really only one way to get up and down off this mountain. It's very clear where, what was going on. The Canaanites, right, uh, were, 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 were torturing. They were, they were brutalizing the Jewish people. They were taxing them heavily, stealing their crops, discriminating against them, abusing them. And finally, enough was enough. And uh, the leaders of the Jewish people came to Dvorah. They came to Dvorah, to a woman, to a prophetess. And they said, we, we want your help. Right? And they came to Barak. I'm not getting the story exactly, whatever, I'm oversimplifying it. And Barak didn't want to go to war without Dvorah. Because she was the Shofeta. She was the wise woman in those days. Right? So long before the Equal Rights Amendment, and long before feminism, Dvorah goes with Barak into battle. And it describes where the Canaanites come from. It describes how the Jews are trying to do battle, right? And Hashem performs a miracle, and there's rain, and the rain turns to mud, and the chariots of the Canaanites get stuck, and the rest is history. And the rain falls just at the right time. And you can imagine, so Dvorah sings this magnificent song, right? Shirat Dvorah. And in this song, one of the more poignant parts of the story is that the general of the Canaanites, a fellow by the name of Sisera. And Sisera has never been defeated because he's got this massive army and he's got these iron chariots. It's like, it's like the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising fighting the Nazis with their Blitzkrieg machine and their Panzer tanks and their Messerschmitts. Like, you don't have a chance. And so the assumption is, when is my son coming home? And Sisera's mother is in the palace and she starts to realize something's wrong. Because Canaanite soldiers are coming back, only they're not coming back with the smell of victory. And the nurse smiles on their faces, and she can see the wounded, and she can see the anguish, and she starts realizing that something has gone terribly wrong. And so she begins to wait for her son, and her son isn't coming, and she asks everybody, where's her son, where's her son? Right? And we all know the story of what happens to Devorah and Yael and whatever, we'll spare you the whole story. Certainly this story is women are the heroes of the story. And she begins to cry. And then as she realizes he's not coming, she begins to wail. The sounds of anguish. I remember once 
Um, it was actually the day that I was the day that I finished the army. The night before I finished the army, I had gotten out of the army early um, because we had just taken a new kav. We had just gotten down to the Bikat, to the Jordan Valley. There's no point in my being there for two days, so they let me finish early. And I had this whole plan with my parents to go on a drive and a barbecue. I was watching the news, and a Jordanian soldier snuck over the border, ambushed a patrol, um, and killed uh, two of the soldiers, um, Rafi Rukhlis and, uh, and Shaimi Zrahi. Never came home from that ambush, the whole story of what happened there. And so the next day, instead of going on this awesome tour with my parents and barbecue, whatever, I went to a funeral. I went to two funerals. And um, I will never forget. I'll never forget his funeral. Rafi's funeral. His uh, mother, I guess he, she was Yemenite or something. And do you ever, you ever listen to, you ever hear a bar mitzvah where they're the Sephardim, they go, Ooh! you ever hear that sound, right? So they make the same sound at funerals. It's the exact same sound, right? And you could hear this mother begin to wail. Lama, Lama, Alta Zovoti, don't leave me. She threw herself on the coffin. You know, and, and the sounds of that woman's agony are still in my head. That is the sound of Sister's mother. What major halachic import comes from that story? What do we do? Anybody know? Shofar. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah says that we learn the Yalile Yalil, the Genuche Ganach, the sobs and the sighs of anguish of Sister's mother are the sounds of the Shofar. That's actually an incredible halacha. We learn the sound which is designed to arouse us to be better from the anguished pain of the mother of our arch enemy who tried to destroy us. Like we're being sensitive to Eichmann's mother. Do you understand that? It's unbelievable. And in the pain of this moment, Devorah calls out, Aim Sisra Ba'adashnav, and the mother of Sisra is moaning sort of on the windowsill. Madua Boshesh Rechvo Lavo. Why does his chariot tarry? Why is it delayed in coming? Madua Echeru Why are the, the hoof sounds, the thunder of the chariots not being heard? So the word Boshesh means to be delayed. Vayar Amki Boshesh Moshe. Now Rashi quotes the Medrash that the Jewish people get messed up. Right? Moshe tells them, I'm going up for 40, 40 days. But when does the 40 days start and end? Does it end in the morning? Does it end in the night? There's some sort of confusion there. And without getting into the detail about exactly what, what Rashi's intent is, what the menace is, the Jewish people got the clock wrong. They thought Moshe's coming down at 3, it's 6 o'clock, he's not back yet. That's how this all starts. Now, for putting aside for the moment what's about to happen, I mean, that's unbelievable. Do you understand the impact of the Chet Ha'elon? Zohar says that the, 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 the consequence of this Chet was so enormous that if Hashem was to give over the consequence for this Chet in one shot, the Jewish people would have been destroyed. Right? That's what Hashem says. I'm going to destroy them. Right? It's unbelievable. So because it was such a terrible transgression, Moshe succeeds. You can't change the consequence of a chait. 
If Hashem says this is the consequence, it has to be the consequence. What Moshe Rabbeinu somehow does is he commutes the sentence to a payment plan. Instead of having to pay the whole loan back at once, you pay it over a period of time. And there's actually a chilling statement in the Zara that says that when the price, when the payment plan is almost paid up, which means that we're almost done with the exile, all the pain that we've ever experienced, all the negative consequence, all of Chmelnitsky's massacres and, and the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades, it all comes, implies the Zohar, from this Chayta Ego. Because really we were supposed to be destroyed. Because the, 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 the consequence of Chayta Ego is the Jewish people doesn't deserve to be here. So Hashem commutes it, and we partly stop being here, here, and we partly stop being here, there. And eventually when the payment plan is almost paid up, so the last payment plan, so Hashem exacts a more serious payment to get it done with. Right? right before we're ready to begin the process of redemption, there will be a payment that is so horrible that it will signal that the end of exile is finally coming. That's what it says in, in, in classic works that were written thousands of years ago. Unbelievable when you think about what happened in modern history. And all of this happens. Like if you take that literally, and I'm not sure it's meant to be taken literally, but if you do take it literally... It means that all of this that happened, the Holocaust, Chmelnitsky, the Spanish Inquisition, the Middle Age Crusades, the Byzantine massacres, it all came because of Chet Egel. And why did Chet Egel come? Because Moshe Rabbeinu was late. That's why Chet Egel happens. That's crazy. Okay, let's keep reading. So they gather on Aaron, because... Moshe's gone. Moshe went up to the mountain and we don't know what happened to him. So the problem here is that Moshe is missing. Now, why is that such a problem? You're sitting at Har Sinai. You've just heard the Ten Commandments. Yeshua's walking around. Aaron is there. Kalev ben Yefuna is hanging out in his tent. There's, there's Shivim Skenim. All the leaders of the Jewish people are there. Moshe Rabbeinu is up on the mountain. And they don't know what happened to him. Now, by the way, on the 39th day, they have no problem. No chete. 35th day, no problem. They haven't seen him in five weeks. Not a problem. Five weeks and three days. Five weeks and four days. All of a sudden, at a certain point, they're like, okay, he's gone. So what does that mean he's gone? And why doesn't Aaron just say, he'll be down tomorrow? So, I got a good idea. Moshe is not here. Give me your gold. What does gold have to do with the fact that Moshe is late? You know? Rabbi Aaron can't make sure today. Okay, let's collect bottle caps. Huh? What does this even mean? So they say, okay. They take off all their gold. I know there's Midrashim, the women, fine. They take off their gold. I would think this is actually pretty impressive. If I walked to the base manager and I said, listen, you know, Rabbi Aaron can't make it today, so we're going to collect a fund to hire a new teacher. You know? Can everybody take out their wallet and donate? Everybody right away puts out their wallet and starts putting money in the pool. I mean, that'd be unbelievable. Like, just, just like that. I would think this is incredible. What a bracha. 
Vayaseu Egel Masecha. So I know the word Vayaseu is a complicated word, and it's not clear what happens. The Medrash says, you know, he just throws the gold in, the Egel jumps up. We're not really going to get into the mechanics of that, right? Vayomru. Eile Elohecha Yisrael Sheralucha Mitzrayim. And they said, who is they said? Very interesting, right? These are your gods, Israel, Asher He'elucha Meretz Mitzrayim, who brought you up from, what does it mean brought you up? Who's the they and who's the you? It should say us. Am ki Moshe. So what do Chazal say? Anybody know? Right, so there's this, who are the Erev Rav? There's this Erev Rav comes from the word Erev from Irbuvia. There's a multitude. There's a mixture of people. Right? Pshat in the Rambam, you know, we're going to be having a couple classes after Pesach on Miu Yudi, who was a Jew, intermarriage, whatever. You know, how could Shimshon marry Delilah? She wasn't Jewish, all these types of questions. And one of the things that come up is this concept of the Erev Rav. Okay, this is a group of people who somehow came out with the Jewish people, but they weren't originally part of the Jewish people. So what are they doing here? Right? So it's very simple what they're doing here. If you were living in Egypt and you were part of a slave population, and all of a sudden 600,000 people say, we're out of here, and there's nothing the Egyptians can do, and you're a slave, well, I guess you go along for the ride. So you're physically joining the party, but you haven't really bought into the principle. Right? So there's a dialogue going on here. So Aaron builds a Mizbeach. We're going to make a Chag to Akash Baruch Hu. There seems to be some kind of tension here. What does Vayashkimu, what does that remind you of? Vayashkem. When do we find the concept of Vayashkem? This is when a person, yeah? Avram rises early for the Akedah. Bilam rises early, yeah, right? People get up, they're not just getting up for motivation, they're, they're rising to do Ritzon Hashem. They believe that for this moment they're here and, and they're aroused to do this. Paro, by the way, you find similar, it doesn't say Vashkem. So the Jewish people arise and they're motivated. Now what are they motivated? They're motivated to declare a Chag Hashem. That's what it says. So that's great. What is this Chag Hashem? And they offer up Korbanot. By the way, what's a Korban Ola? What, what is a carbon oil? It's what? It's all, it's a, it's, it's a whole burnt offering. What else is it called? It's called a nedava. It represents passionate volunteerism. You're not obligated, there's only one instance where you're obligated to offer up an ola, and that's the olata riyah when you come up to uh, Aliyah the Regal. And that's because you're obligated to feel passionate. But this is all about passion. They're passionate here. What is it they're passionate about? So they sit to eat and drink. Now, if it's a Chag, I mean, we all know what a Chag is. That's a holiday. You have a holiday party. So what's the problem here? And then they get up to laugh. And Yerachim says, this is when things turn ugly. Now, what is Vayakumu Litzachek? Where else do I find this concept of, 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 of Litzachek, Mitzachek? What? So Sarah laughs, right? Where else do I see? Anybody know? When, when Yitzchak is in Grar, okay? And he's told everybody that Rivka is his sister, and Avimelech looks out the window in an eerie repetition of the story, actually two stories of his father, 
So Avimelech, the sort of ruler of, of, of Grar, of this Philistine city, looks out his window and what does he see? He sees Yitzchak mitzachek at Rivka. He sees him being mitzachek and he suddenly realizes she's not his sister. Pshat Pasuk. So whatever mitzacheking is tells you they're not a brother and sister. Now you don't have to use your imagination. It doesn't mean they're playing patty cake. He's, he's behaving in a fashion in public, thinking nobody's watching him, that's intimate with his wife. He's hugging her, he's kissing her, he's standing near her. That's what it means, letzachek. Right? When Yishmael is mitzachek at Yitzchak, right? So Sarah gets very upset about this, and Rashi says that he introduces gilui arayot. Mitzachek is a language of licentious behavior. So when it says vayakumu litzachek, they begin to frolic, right? And it's known, by the way, that pagan rituals very often included all sorts of sexual improprieties, licentious behavior, etc. Okay? Now, what does that have to do with this story? Why is that here? Okay? Now, finally, Akash Baruch Hu gets involved. By Daber Hashem El Moshe. Lech Reid. Get down. Where is Moshe right now? He's Arsina. Okay? And Moshe says, and Hashem says to him, you don't belong here. Because your people, I love that. When they're trouble, they're your people. Right? But okay. Your people have become destructive that you brought up out of Egypt. By the way, on a very deep level, if your people have become destructive, you are responsible. That's what leadership is about. Leadership is about taking responsibility for your pakudim, for those who are under your command, messing up. Okay? So let's pause here. First of all, there's an amazing Meshachachma. The Meshachachma of Meir Simcha of Dvinsk, who... Rav Meir Simcha was one of the Gdoli Ador of his day. He lived... Uh, he was really one of the greats in Dvinsk. Um, he was not the only great. Uh, he's also known as the Or Sameach. He wrote a tremendous commentary on the Rambam, Chidush Shas. Um, but he also has a parish on the Chumash. It's not a simple commentary. It's called the Meshech Chachma. And um, actually, it's interesting, the Meshech Chachma um, was published posthumously in 1927, after Meir Simcha was Nifter. And there's a very cryptic piece at the beginning of Parshat Bechukotai. Um, there were those of his followers who believed that he had Ruach HaKodesh, who believed that he had divine vision, um, which is sort of one step alone of Ruach, because in his introduction to Parshat Bechukotai, the Meshachachma says, there is a great storm coming to the Jewish people. Remember, Bechukotai is one of the two parshat that contains all these curses, all these terrible things that are going to befall the Jewish people if we mess up. And he says, there is a great storm that is coming to the Jewish people. And it's a storm the likes of which we have never seen. And it will destroy major communities in the Jewish people. And when this storm is over, there will be no recourse for the Jewish people but to go home. And the Geula is coming. That's what he writes. It's an unbelievable line. And he has a cryptic line there. He says, and this storm is coming out of Germany. That's what he writes. This was published in 1927 after he died. There are two opinions among those who like to have opinions on such things. One is he's talking about the reform movement, reconstructionism, all these things that, that came out of Germany, that that's the storm. And the other you can imagine. So the Merschachachma is not something to be trifled with. He has an unbelievable idea here. What does it mean, Lech Raid? Hashem tells Moshe to get down. Moshe is at the highest point that a human being has ever reached. 
He's at Har Sinai. He's talking to God face to face, whatever that even means. He's at the 40th day of Har Sinai. It does not get any higher than this moment. He's literally a moment away from bringing Torah down to the Jewish people. And you can imagine the rabbis have a field day. If he would have brought the first lucha, plavin by God, they would have gone straight to Israel. They would have built the third base of Mikdash and Moshe would have brought it in. If Moshe came into Israel and built the third base of Mikdash, the Jewish people would never have been exiled. We'd be living in Yemosa Mashiach already. It was all there. And the Jewish people, the Jewish people are in their nadir. They are experiencing the lowest moment in Jewish history. It's about as low as it gets. Right? They're at the foot of Sinai. They're frolicking with an idol, running naked in the sand. Unbelievable. Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, if you're all the way up here, and they're all the way down there, something's wrong. You don't belong up here. You have to go down. It is such a powerful message of what leadership is about. You know? We're, we're, we're on top of the mountain here. We're living the dream. We're in the old city of Yerushalayim. We're learning Torah. Like, what's our biggest challenge? You know, whether we get one hamburger or two hamburgers at dinner. Like, it's unbelievable. But the Jewish people are suffering. They're struggling. And if we're all the way up here and they're all down there, the way down there, something's wrong. We don't get to stay here forever. You know? But on a deeper level, so... So what, what happened here? So I want to suggest a very simple idea. But the reason this idea is important to think about is because it applies to who we are, right? What was the assumption of the Jewish people? The assumption of the Jewish people is that we can't manage without Moshe Rabbeinu. That this individual is irreplaceable. If there was ever a person that you were going to say is irreplaceable, it would be Moshe Rabbeinu. What happens when Moshe leaves? There, there, there's no... Right? There was no one who came close to Moshe Rabbeinu. Now why does the Chet Egel happen? Because the Jewish people see that Moshe is late. They don't think he's coming back. And if he's not coming back, they're all alone. Now let me ask you a question. Whose fault is this? Whose fault is this? Who really messed up here? Really, Moshe. You think Moshe messed up here? Why is Moshe up on the mountain? Shem told him to go on the mountain. Why does Moshe have to be up there for 40 days to begin with? Like if I'm God and I'm given the Torah, I got a great idea. You ever watch Star Trek? There's this thing called the Vulcan Mind Transfer. Spock transfers knowledge just by touching you. So, who's this? Moshe Rabbeinu, right? So I'm going to give Moshe the zone, right? We're done. What do I need 40 days for? Couldn't Kush Brahma give Moshe the Torah? Feel good? Kiss my head. You got Baba Basra there, right? Okay? Why does he need 40 days? By the way, why does Moshe Rabbeinu have to go up on the mountain? Everybody talks about Moshe Kibbal Torah Misinai, it's not on the Himalayas, it's, we learn humility, it's a small mountain. If you want to learn humility, give it to him in a pit. You know, let Moshe, everybody makes a big ring around Moshe Rabbeinu, 600,000. They all start singing, you know, 
pocket full of posies, ring of rosies, a chveis nisht. Moshe gets the Torah, we're all done. You don't have to go up, you don't have to go down, we don't have to wonder where he is, it's right here. I'll give you a better one. Why are we in Harsinai to begin with? Okay? Let's say that this is Egypt. Where is Eretz Israel? This is Egypt. Up here, right? Okay, up here. So we have to go straight up the coast to get to Eretz Israel, to get to Israel. But we don't go straight to the coast. We go all the way around to the Red Sea. And then we end up somewhere down here. We don't even know exactly where it is. And Harsinai. Why do we have to go to Harsinai? Why don't we go up there to Israel and get the Torah there? In fact, why don't we get the Torah in Egypt? Now, putting aside part of that question, which is really about emunah and ishtadlut and the ability to see the world and to have choice in our life, the reason that we're at Harsinai is because Hashem wanted us to be at Harsinai. The reason that, that the Jewish people didn't know where Moshe was because Hashem didn't want them to know where Moshe was. The reason there was a Chet Egel is because it was meant to be a Chet Egel. How do I know there was meant to be a Chet Egel, a sin of the Golden Gap? Because there was one. And it was written in the Torah. And it would be theologically very challenging if you believe the Torah is a divine work to say that Hashem wasn't sure what he was going to write in there until the Jewish people messed up. It was always part of the plan. The Torah was, was the fabric of creation. It was the blueprint of creation. It was always part of the plan that there would be a Chet Egel. The first generation of Jews was not meant to get into Eretz Israel. They were never meant to get into Eretz Israel. How do I know that? Because they didn't. That's what's going on in Chet Egel. They were not meant to. Hashem planned that they weren't going to get into Eretz Israel. This is just how Hashem brought about His plan. So what is really going on here? What is Hashem trying to teach us? What does Chet Egel teach us? And there are many lessons you can learn from Chet Egel. One of them is that no one's indispensable. No one is indispensable. You know, it is hard to describe the awe that you feel for your commanders when you're coming up through the ranks in the army. Like, we had a battalion commander, right? Unbelievable. Uh, uh, what was this? Eyal Ben Ruvain was his name. He's a legend. Um, he eventually became a division commander, which is a huge officer. He became a Haver Knesset. Um, and, and I remember certain things that he did with us when we were in Kakash. Remember that t- story I told you about the battalion commander I had who gave us the challenge of being able to get the tank open from the inside? Do you remember this story? Do you know what I'm talking about? You know the story? Oh, this is an amazing story. Ah. <laughs> oh. You may not remember the Parshish you you remember this story. It's an unbelievable story. Um, Eyal Ben Ruven was a tank driver, which is how I started, in the Yom Kippur War. Okay? And he was down in the Sinai. And uh, things were really, really bad down in the Sinai. There were three tanks on the Barlev line. I can tell you the story? Wow. Three tanks on the Barlev line. Interrupt me when you recognize the story. There were three tanks on the Barlev line opposite the Suez Canal when hundreds of thousands of Egyptians crossed the border. They were hopelessly outnumbered. And uh, the whole story of the Kaveh Blima attempting to, to bring reinforcements down, it's just a, a nightmare. And the, the worst part of it was that the Egyptians had a brand new, they had anti-tank missiles, Russian Sagars, and the and toes, and the, the, the Israeli tanks were like butter. And, and they just had no defense against this. And so tank after tank was just blowing up. And he was in a tank called the Centurion, a shot, which is a British-made tank. Now, the chieftain tank, the Centurion, the shot, um, had very heavy armor, 
And one of the most vulnerable positions in the tank is the driver, because you're in the front of the tank. So if you get hit from the front, so they put serious armor in. And part of that armor is on top of the, you know, sort of where you have to get out. So there were two metal iron doors, kind of grill doors, that kind of one went down, the other one on top of the other. And it was impossible to open these from the inside. So the way that you would open them from the inside is the loader would jump down, and he would pull, and you would push, and you would get out. That's how it worked, right? So they were in the middle of battle, Yom Kippur War, and his tank was hit. And by some miracle, because if, if, the, if the gun, if the, if the turret is not rotated sideways, then the gun's on top of the door, you can't get out. But by some miracle, when they were hit, the, the, gunner, the, the gun was facing sideways, so the doors were open. And possibly because of this, the commander who jumped out just assumed that, that the loader would get down and jump out, because that was what you did. But the loader, it turned out, was injured. So he gave the order to abandon tank, and every tank crew knows how to abandon tank in three seconds. But Eyal Ben Ruven is in the driver's compartment, and nobody's come down to get him out. And the tank is burning. And he can't get the tank doors open. And he's screaming, and nobody hears him, because they're off the tank, because the tank's going to explode in here. And there's bullets flying everywhere, and there's tank shells flying. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's a small guy. He's like my size, maybe smaller than me even. So he manages to turn himself upside down and get on the seat of the driver, which is like this sort of low stool. And he puts his feet up against the tzariach, against the doors. And with this tremendous burst of energy, he throws open the doors. And he managed to clamber out of the tank. And literally like out of the movies, he gets off the tank and like three seconds after he gets to the tank, the tank explodes. Now when the war dust settles in the war and the war is over, and there are obviously many other stories that he told us, um, he tried to recreate this. He just, he thought this was an amazing thing that you could teach men to turn upside down and get the tank door open. This was something valuable. So he wanted to figure out how he did this. Try as he might, he could not repeat this feat. So we were in officer's course. And on the first day of officer's course, you know, he was our battalion commander. Battalion commander is like, uh, I don't know, 35, 40 tanks. It's a pretty big unit. You know, you're talking about a guy who's a, a lieutenant colonel. And he gives us a speech on the first day to motivate us. You're going to be going through probably one of the toughest courses in the Israeli army. You're not going to sleep for four months. You're going, to, you're going to be depressed nonstop for four months. It's a very difficult thing. But he wants to inspire you to push yourself to get through it. So he tells us this story. And he says, um, on any given Thursday night, when we get back from Shetach, you can go down to the tanks and any driver... Word of honor. Any tank member who can get inside the turret of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a short tank and throw open the doors on his own will get a weekend pass. You tell me you did it, I'll give you Shabbat off. Right? Now, you don't understand. This is like me telling you that, you know, if you, if you finish a Masechta, so we're going to pay for you to, to spend two weeks, you know, eating hamburgers every day, in a the five star hotel in Sfat. Like, you know, this is unbelievable, right? Okay? So I can tell you that at least three times I went down to the Mishtachim. Now you have to understand, when you get back from Shetach Thursday, you can't move. You're exhausted. And Friday morning, you're exhausted. But if you're in for Shabbat, you're in for Shabbat. And sometimes we would go down there on a Friday afternoon. Try as I could, none of us was ever able to do this. And I guarantee you, every cadet in our entire battalion must have tried this at least two or three times. It was like, it became a thing on Thursday night. Last day of the course. We're now finished. And he gathers us all together again. And he says, so, 
Who here tried to, to do that? Everybody raised their hand. Who here tried twice? Almost everybody kept their hand up. Who here tried three times? Most of us kept their hand up. He said, did anybody here succeed? Nobody succeeded. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, when you have to do what you have to do, you learn that you're capable of finding the strength to do it. It's not dependent on anyone else. If you live your life waiting for the loader to open up the iron doors, you may never get out. Know that you have the ability to rise to the occasion. That was what that Ringo test was. That Ringo test was an understanding that if you have to, you can command the battalion, even though you've never been trained for it. There is nothing that we can't do if we believe it's what Hashem wants us to do, and we're willing to find the energy to do it. The Jewish people didn't understand that. You know? It's an interesting question what the Chet Egel was. The Zohar says, Altikra Egel Aleigul. How could the Jewish people forget God? Like they just heard God. It can't be that they didn't know that Hashem runs the world. One of the ways of understanding this, Al Kabbalah, is the question wasn't, does, is God here? Does God run the world? The question is, what do you do the day after you talk directly to God? How do you, what do you do with that? You don't even know what to do with yourself. The Jewish people couldn't handle it. Right? What is the egul that the Zohar speaks about as opposed to ego? The perfect circle. Right? It's the shape that represents HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Ein Sof. They were trying to recreate their experience with God here on earth. And they didn't know that they could do it without Moshe. They tried, but they did it wrong, for whatever the reasons. And by the way, what's the result of this, at least according to Rashi? Hashem says, okay, you figured out what you need to do, but you've got to do it with me, not despite me. So we're going to build something here on earth for you to experience me and for you to channel it, but we're going to build it my way. We're going to build a Mishkan, and in the Mishkan we're going to put a Kodesh and a Kodesh Kadashim, and the Kodesh Kadashim we'll put an Aron. And what's the, going to be on the Aron? Two Kruvim. What are they going to be made of? Gold. That's a Kodesh Baruch Hu's Hashem takes Moshe away from the Jewish people because the Jewish people need to learn that Kula is not dependent on Moshe Rabbeinu. Kula is dependent on our relationship with Kodesh Baruch and, and the ability to know, you know, you're going to spend a year, maybe some of you even two years, growing in ways that's impossible to imagine. And some of you are starting to experience that. And, and you become, to a certain degree, dependent. You're dependent on your rebbeim, depending on having a base medrash. You know, you'll see. You're, you're, you're a week away from entering Benaz Mani. And fortunately, within the context of Corona, you're finally going to have a real Benaz Mani. Go. Taste Israel. Experience it in healthy, safe ways. With your masks and social distancing, but, but taste it. Go up to the Golan. Go down to the Go up to the Galil. Experience Israel in all its beauty. But I'm telling you that some of you are going to have a challenge. Because you feel like you grew so much. And then all of a sudden you're going to discover, wow, look at this. Three days been by. I didn't even crack a safer. I thought I was so there. I haven't got the minion in two days. And it's going to depress you. So on the one hand, see. You have a chance to test yourself, to see. Where am I? And you're going to discover one of two things. You're either going to discover that the base medrash, the rebellion, all the stuff that we're doing here is giving you strength, but you're not, you're not incapable of becoming independent of that. You grow from it, and then you're ready to achieve it on your own. Or you're going to discover you still have more work to do. But that's the goal. Jewish people don't stay in the desert. That generation 
is not ready to enter into Eretz Yisrael. But the next one is, and they don't go in with Moshe Rabbeinu, because Moshe Rabbeinu was not meant to be the reason for redemption. He was meant to be a role model that allowed people to become almost their own redeemers, with all the challenging questions that that raises. That's sort of one idea at the heart of Chet Egal. You know? We were so close. We were so close. But we weren't ready. And we experience this in life. And you'll experience it, and you'll experience it again. But every time it gets you a little closer. So Shem should bless us, on the one hand, that we appreciate the value of the Moshe's that we experience in our life, while at the same time we learn to develop a certain independence so that we're not totally dependent on being in their presence. It was an extremely painful experience to lose our Lichtenstein, to see a Ramital get old and sick, to realize that the Rebbeim that you had are not here physically in the world. But then something else powerful happens. You discover that you gain so much from them that you can continue to grow even though they're not physically here because you live in the Torah and everything else. That's a little bit of food for thought. There's a lot more to think about. So it's something to think about on Parashat Kitisah.